0: welcome to this episode of cast This week, we're going to do the Scream Duo Part 2, looking at Scream 3 and Scream 4, released, respectively, in the year 2000 and 2011, directed by the one and only Wes Craven. What the fuck happened to you? Jennifer, you? Who gave you a place to stay? Who are you supposed to be protecting? Jennifer? My lawyer liked that, not as much as I did. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to this new episode of Instead of Cast. We're back again, talking about Scream, as we have the new one released in just a few days, and of course, we may as well get up to speed and talk about sort of my thoughts on the original four films. And we're going to start again by looking at Scream three and Scream four, directed by Wes Craven, of course. My thoughts on both films and what I kind of anticipate for the next film towards the end, which will be very very nice. Big announcement before we start, Uh, I am hopefully going to be uh, joining on another podcast called The Skirtalk. We're going to be recording that next weekend, and I'll probably uh, drop that episode on the 25th, because the 18th will be dedicated to the new Scream film, and to round off that little bit of a series... Better late than ever, eh? So let's get started. We'll talk about Scream 3 first, which was released in the year 2000, uh, February 3rd, I believe, and of course directed by Wes Craven with all of our original expected stars, you know, David Arquette, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, uh, just as the the baseline. And then we have a whole array of new characters uh, as basically we're going to be replicating a lot of what happened from the original film as this is kind of where step three is setting things you know back in woodsboro back with all the original people obviously we don't really get a lot of insight into what the actual plot of step three is especially because a lot of it ends up just getting binned anyway the only thing we really take of any kind of meaningful information is just who is in the film, and kind of what order they die, and also the fact that a lot of Maiden characters die in it. Uh, you know, like Gale Weathers and, and Dewey were all meant to die in this, from what I gathered. And, you know, although it may never happen in the actual Scream franchise, we'll see what happens in the next one. But, um, at least in Stamp, they're kind of warming up the idea that these are possibilities. So Scream 3, I think, is obviously the probably the most divisive film In the franchise, I think a lot of people generally didn't think it was that good, but obviously there's a lot of really stark defenders of Scream 3 uh, in in thinking that it wasn't as bad as people say it is and that actually there's some really good content in there. And kind of like in the middle. For me, Scream 3 has always been a bit like, nah, I could take it or leave it. I, I don't think it's bad. I just think you could tell that it feels like a film that was kind of glued together and not specifically had the same kind of finesse as some of the other Scream films and obviously now when you look back there's a lot of social messaging that's kind of empowered this film a lot especially when you think about like the similarities to Harvey Weinstein and and sort of the things that happened within the Hollywood industry and people that were essentially victims to gain roles on, on major films uh it kind of has given the film a bit of a lease of life or at least more contextual relevance into why certain themes were even in the film to begin with because obviously this this film could have been set anywhere at any point in time, you know, in, in any country really but we're in the heart of LA, Hollywood you know, talking about major Hollywood films within a film and obviously the culture behind that So there's a deliberate choice into why this message is here. I hope... Well... If I'd never seen the film before, which obviously I have, if I was watching it for the first time, I would hope that it wouldn't be something that gets lost in the source of its own messaging. Because sometimes that, you know, really damages a film, especially if it's within a franchise. But as I know the film, I've watched the films many times, I don't think it does that. I think it just about manages to save itself by being somewhat remotely interesting. But obviously there's quite a lot of issues in Scream 3, which we'll just get into now, I guess. So the film kind of opens with Cotton Weary. Um, he has like a new television show called 100% Cotton, and obviously this is... Cotton getting his justice I guess the, the fame and the fortune on the back of Scream 2 I guess the interview with Diane Sawyer Went really well I think Cotton Worry is a very Weird character When you look retrospectively At the Scream series uh, I think he had a really important pivotal part To play not only in Sydney's life But in the death of Marie Prescott Yet in the films he's kind of just A side character that isn't really that Important You know, he was used as a bit of scare tactics and intimidation in Scream 2, like, you know, is he one of the killers? Is he trying to get revenge on Sydney? And then, yeah, he was, like, kind of the good guy towards the end, but not really, because he was only good for his own personal interest. And then in Scream 3, introduction, he just gets killed. And that, to me, is just kind of bizarre, because you know, I don't know if this is like a Wes thing or a a Kevin Williamson thing, but, like, you know, you can just reference him in the same way they did, like, with uh, Billy's dad, for example, without necessarily, like, having to give him any lines or dialogue in the film and any pivotal role to play. kind of feels like, why introduce a character if you're not so sure about what you're going to be doing with him throughout the future of the the film franchise? Um, I think, based on the relationships, it's quite obvious that there's no way that him and Cindy could ever be friends. So, you know, why is he even here? (laughs) but I guess this is why they kill him off, you know. Um, so he gets contacted by Ghostface, and this is kind of before we realise that there's a voice changer. But obviously it clearly gets revealed when this called, I did The voice changer is something that I think split people quite a lot, because it seemed kind of unrealistic. But if anything, these days, there's a lot of apps out there, there's a lot of things that modulate people's voices quite easily. I don't think it's a too stretch now to think that these types of things are realistic. I wouldn't be surprised if this type of stuff happens again in the new Scream franchise. I don't think it will, because I'll get into that in the end. I think I know specifically what might happen in this next Scream film. But at least, when you look back at sort of the retrospective thing of this film, it doesn't actually seem too out there now when you look back on it. But obviously at the time, it was probably like a really ridiculous idea. But I didn't think it was too bad. I think it adds some pretty decent... Moments of, you know, doubt on on who's communicating with each other. And considering that there's not, actually, I think, a lot of setup of potential suspects in this film, that you guess you kind of need to have some kind of seed of doubt. For me, I think this is where the film kind of really lacks. There is no... Like, compare this to like Scream 1 and Scream 2. There is no uh, setup into potential suspects. It's all kind of like just a group of people and then there's a killer, you know? And it could literally be anyone, including people that we're not even looking at right now, because they all appear as victims. You know, there's no um there's no depth, there's no grey lines, there's no grey characters. It's very like cut and dry who is good and who is bad. And if anyway, that kind of makes maybe certain people look more suspicious than others. But really, like, not that much. So Cotton and his girlfriend is dead. And it kind of cuts to Gail giving some weird TED talk to teenagers. And then we see the real crime in this film, which is Gail's hair. Like... Holy moly. Like Whose idea was that? She looks ridiculous. She actually looks ridiculous. But this is just what we have to live through. And I, I know for a fact um, the actress probably knew this and, and hated it looking back. But, you know. I don't even think that that was popular when this film came out in the 2000s. I, I, I don't know. Late 90s trends, maybe? If ever we would. Anyway, so she meets a guy called Mark Kincaid. Who has very like, you know, he has this kind of false aura where the film like wants you to think he's a suspect, but literally he does nothing suspicious in the entire film, and in fact, like, he behaves just as the police should do. Yet, yeah, you know, right at the end, they want to seed some doubt, and it's kind of weird. They did this a bit again, like in Scream Two. I think I mentioned, um, not enough setup to kind of make that justified. And anyway, they kind of realise that there's some picture of Sydney, uh, Sydney's mother, as like a young actress. So they go to Hollywood. She goes to Hollywood to find Dewey uh, working as an advisor for Step 3, I guess. And, you know, they said they wanted like someone authentic who was there and that kind of thing. And we sort of, you know, continue the troubles of The Gale and Divi relationship. But here we do get to meet all of the cast. For Stamp 3. Who. You know. Look like pretty generic people. But I guess we also get to see like some of the insight of the studio. And the directors. Arguing about if they should make Stamp 3. Based on like murders. And I think this is kind of. Similar to things that they were replicating in Scream 2. Where it was kind of like. You know. Studios getting really concerned about, like, on-screen violence and, and, like, the the possibility of this, like, inspiring real-life events. Which we know statistically, like, if you look at it, like, it's just not true. But these are things that companies are going to talk about when they worry about what's going to happen to their chances of making money. And also, like, the really weird thing in this film is the idea of, like, the killer leaving photos, right? So, when you think about this now in context, we know the killer is Roman, and Roman's the one who is leaving photos, essentially breadcrumbs, to kind of get himself caught when you think about it, Um, because everything's going to run back to Hollywood, everything's going to run back to Maureen Prescott and the relationship that she had with other people, although he is supposedly a child that was abandoned, no one knows about, you know. That, that does seem kind of weird, leaving photos behind, but I guess, you know. It makes him unique, and it, it ties into his motive. Sydney, we now realise, is living in complete isolation. Don't blame her. And she works online as like a crisis counselor for uh, Abused Women's Hotline. I think it's a pretty noble thing to do. I think it's kind of nice. It shows a lot of testimony of what Sydney's like as a character. Frankly, I feel like if I was her like I don't know I don't want to work with puppies or something like super chill I don't think I'd want to like deal with more crisis and more people in distress but you know I think yeah it kind of ties to where Sydney is and how she is now more of a fighter against this type of crime than a victim kind of like in Scream 1 when she sort of you know, took the kill and took to charge of ending a lot of things that many final girls could never achieve in their own franchises. So then the weird kind of thing is uh, Sydney gets a phone call who is basically ghost face and uses the voice changer to kind of mess about with Sydney. This is like a little bit weird for me uh, you know, just like, you just establish that someone's in complete isolation, away from everybody, so that nobody can possibly know where she is yet, somehow Ghostface knows where she is, and when you think about this now in the great, in the great context, we know who the killer is, right, so um, when you think about Roman, who is a director in Hollywood, who yes, knows where Woodsboro is we don't have any confirmation that Sydney's actually in Woodsboro. She's just in some isolated house, like there's just no feasible way that he knows where she is. It's just a little bit ridiculous and kind of a stretch to be honest, but anyway, this kind of prompts um Sydney to leave and go to Hollywood. I guess that's where the film is happening, so that is where she is going. But obviously, um, this does kind of clearly play an effect on her. She starts having like dreams of seeing her mother as like a ghost. Which, when you looked back, I think most people were terrified when they first saw that. Uh, it is super, super creepy. And even the is throughout the film, really, like using her voice and and sort of using this sort of ghost apparition of her mother, it just it just also seems very bizarre when you look at the Scream franchise, it is so out there compared to anything that we've had in other films. Like, everything feels... Everything used to feel really grounded and really, like, real life and human. And this is almost like a supernatural element and kind of a bit more beyond that, you know? Into potentially more of like a a Nightmare on Elm Street kind of thing, right? Where you sort of, like, you're dreaming and you're having visions of like terrors and things are getting you new dreams and stuff which I think is kind of cool because obviously that's one thing Wes Craven's done already um, I just kind of feel like if you're going to introduce it then like we should go full out on it you know like go full like PTSD like I'm having visions and, and seeing her everywhere like that kind of thing I think that'd be like pretty cool and pretty dark right because you know if Randy says that Trilogies are sort of all about going back and forgetting about the past. And, you know, I think, like, maybe not specifically Randy, but I, I knew this from, like, streaming film. Like, usually in the third horror film, like, the rules are kind of broken, right? So, like, where things could happen that could never happen in previous installments of the franchise. So, for example, like, um, if you take, like, The Grudge, So the Grudge 1 and Grudge 2 was always in the same house in relation to the same family and the same murders. Whereas like in Grudge 3, the Grudge moves out of the house into an apartment complex and the Grudge transfers from one family to another person and becomes a new Grudge, right? So that's kind of like an example of how you expect in the third film rules could be broken and become something else. And I think it's just generally because a trilogy is very hard to... Right for right because at this point you know it's there, and it happens so many times. Like, why are you going to the spooky ghost house? So, new rules have to be set, or at least all rules have to be broken, and a new thing has to be established in order to one, keep it interesting, and two, potentially lead it into future films in the franchise. So after this, Candy um, shows up to production to do, like, some rehearsal. She talks to who she thinks is Roman. Obviously, it's not, but potentially it is. And she gets killed. And it's pretty, like, not that interesting. The main thing that stood out for me was just the whole thing where he comes out between the other costumes. I only remember that because that was in the trailer for this film all the time. That was the only thing they wanted to show you in the trailer. That the thing that stood out the most. So I'll kind of remember about that. Her death is a bit like, eh. And her character is a bit, meh. Then it kind of cuts to Dewey and Gale going to uh, Jennifer's house. Jennifer is like, 100% the the best character in this whole film. Like, she is hilarious. She's played by an actress called Parker Posey. If you've ever seen her sort of IDBD it is chock full of stuff. She's been in in so many things very very talented, very cool and in this film she's just so good man. She's just hilarious. She kind of realises and explains to the cast that people who are being killed now from the set uh, are dying in the order that they did in the script and obviously she's like freaking out because she's next and gail's so offended that she even dies which is kind of funny so meanwhile the rest of the the cast are sort of ripping up the script they're sort of done because the film has been cancelled and obviously they look at a picture of Marine prescott again the one from the crime scene and obviously they compare this to one that Jennifer was taken out and realized it's the same building, and this is where they realized the connection that Maureen Prescott was here in Hollywood before she met Sid's dad, and uh, you know she was involved in the horror productions made there at the time, and obviously this is where we later reveal that she was subject to a lot of the uh, sexual like exploitation in order to get films, and um, this kind of gets relayed relayed a little bit by. um Carrie Fisher, who plays a woman who looks identically like Carrie Fisher, but I think though, what kind of annoys me about these pictures being used as a plot device is they look so badly edited that it really is distracting and it's quite jarring. And the reason why I bring this up and make an issue of this is because when something looks that edited, right, you can't then just take it at face value and say oh, well that means this person was here it's like well no it looks like a newspaper cut out and that she's been glued in front of a building and then you just make assumptions that she was here based on this photo you know there's no kind of question I know like in the film they have to assume that the photo is just real and that it doesn't look as bad as it does You know, but there's no kind of question on if these photos are even Legitimate, They just take it all at face value, you know. It's kind of weird to have, like, a whole uh, police section of the film with, like, police cast, yet there's no kind of, like, investigation side of it. You don't get to see, like, the in and outs. It's the cast, which is Dewey, which at this point is basically, like, not a police officer, I guess, because he's off-duty doing this. And a lot of people who were involved in the original films but then a lot of the cast who isn't involved in that and has no idea all trying to figure out the crime on their own and yeah it been, I, I think it would have been nice to see a bit more like of the police investigation side as well because I think as well because there's no setting up of like potential suspects and I think because they kind of wanted that McCade Kincaid guy to be like a potential suspect I guess they didn't really want to show a lot of his thought process and reasoning but you know I think it would have been good to to see like their idea of suspects because then maybe that gives us something to work off as well. So it's like oh the police thinks you know X person's a suspect well then that gives the audience something to go off because so far the film gives you nothing because with I guess with having the voice modulator as well like and it could literally be everyone what you should do on the back of that is make everybody suspicious, right? You should potentially also make Dewey and Gale, Kincaid, Roman, Milton, you know, all the other cast, right? Uh, Like Angelina and Jennifer and, and Tyson and uh, Sarah and Tom. You know, make all of these people suspicious in some way, right? Maybe, like the police can find some type of dirt on all of them that kind of makes them suspicious. And that kind of gives the audience something to play with then, because then, like, everyone has a potential motive. There's a killer with a voice modulator who's emulating everyone's voices, like, he could literally be anybody. You know, but we don't get that. It's kind of a shame, really. I would have liked to have seen a bit more of that. Or something similar to that. Anyway, so the security guy, uh, called, like, Stevie or something, he gets killed. The cast all find him. They all panic. They'll try and escape. And then there's this very, very weird thing where Tom is like reading fax machines and eventually like the house blows up because there's there's gas. Again, very, very bizarre using fax. This is what I've been talking about for a long time. It's one of those things that can kind of make things a little bit dated sometimes, but as long as the rest of the film has a charm, it's fine. Yeah, this is where they come into another little contact with Ghostface and it leaves behind like another photograph. And this photo has a picture of Raina Prescott saying I killed her, which is quite a big deal. So now we can see where potentially there's someone who's very directly related in Sydney's mother's death. So that's pretty cool. Sydney then appears at the police station, I guess I think it is, in, in Hollywood. And gets to meet sort of Dewey and Kincaid and sort of figure out where things are at. Everyone goes to the place in the photo. They come across Randy's sister. Completely random. And she shows a, a tape of Rivals on the trilogy. Obviously, because he died in the second film. And, you know, it's nice that they got him back to do these sort of roles again and that this, like, continues. It's such a shame they got rid of him to begin with. And um, for his sister to be there, just so randomly, just doesn't make sense. Like, she's in a trailer, in Hollywood. As if she's a part of a film or something. No kind of reason or rhyme as to why that is. Uh, she's not involved with a Scream set, because even Dewey's surprised that she's there and had no idea who she is. Like, so weird to throw that in. This is what I mean when I say some parts of this film just feel glued together. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel like a complete picture. This is why. Anyway, they learned the rules of a trilogy. And they realised that... You know, something was wrong from the get-go. And now things have to be like... Realigned and stuff. Which I get is part of the rule. But like I don't think the film... Does enough to kind of really... Set that up properly. You know, there wasn't really a lot of... Maybe this is more of an issue of the previous films. And you know... Something where people have to really pay attention. But... The things with Cotton Weary and sort of his suspicion around the murder of Marine Prescott and what that means, and the idea that there potentially could still be a killer out there, maybe wasn't highlighted enough in the previous two films for this film to kind of run away with that plot point and, you know, add a more bigger mystery. Or maybe it's more on this film, if not making that more of like a core, integral part of the story, so then the audience knows from the get-go that There's some forgotten part of the mystery, you know? So then we got a little cameo section that's similar to Scream 1 where Cindy's in the bathroom and she realizes that someone's in a stall. She kicks it open with a pepper spray. She finds Angelina with a mask. And this is kind of funny and interesting because when you think about how in the original script she was meant to be the second killer with Roman as sort of Roman's lover. And wanted to sort of replicate Sydney like in the film and sort of be famous and stuff. So it's it's kind of interesting that the scene was still put in here. It does put some sort of shadow over her as if she's a potential suspect. And this type of thing just needed to be more in the film. We needed more reasons to be more suspicious of more people. Like everyone so everyone looked so clean and innocent. Even when you think about Jennifer spending all that time with Gale, so you know that Jennifer's 100% clean, yet she's one of the only people who really kind of stick around towards the end of the film. Everyone else just sort of gets killed off pretty easily. You know, there's, there's no setup of potential people it could be. That part of the mystery is just gone. You know, that's kind of what makes Scream, I think, really fun and interesting for people. It's kind of like a whodunit, but in a modern version, you know, in a slasher context. So because of that we need reasons to be suspicious of people. But it's kind of nice that this was thrown in there and kept in there because I think she definitely dropped more than the mask. It was just so quick you couldn't see it. So then Sydney sort of stumbles upon the set of Woodsboro and our sort of house which must be super creepy and weird to look at. I'm sure that if you were there in person and that was your house you'd be like what? But you know, she has a little look around and it's kind of cool. Then she comes into contact with Ghostface and they have like a bit of a brawl and run around the house and it's all pretty cool. Uh, I really like this scene actually because it's interesting that she knows exactly sort of where to go and what to do because it's it's her house and it's her layout. And then like Roman does this weird thing where he's sort of like under a sheet like a ghost and using the voice modulator to replicate Marine Prescott again. It is super creepy. And again, it's this kind of like this weird, almost supernatural element of the story that is sort of trickled in there. again, maybe we could have had a bit more of this and it could have felt a bit more like um, something that Sydney is dealing with and struggling with. That could have been an interesting aspect, but instead it's just kind of like randomly thrown in there Uh, because it's not like a ingrained part of the story. You have to think, okay, well, that means that Romans took time out of trying to kill Sydney to put a cloak on. And pretend to be Maureen Prescott just to mess with her. Which, you know, maybe he did, but when you're in a set in the middle of Hollywood and people could just be walking in and out generally, you know, never mind the fact that it gets interrupted by the police and basically like a million people, it feels kind of weird, right? Because any time that you just mess about in a really public place like this, dressed as Ghostface with a knife, chasing Sydney who has had this happen to her for years now, the um, you, you just have time to do this, you know, and yeah, it makes like for a creepy scene, but it doesn't feel like it has a lot of depth like the other films, you know, where everything feels really purpose and purpose placed, and everything has a, a reason for it because it's it's referencing this or it's linking to this or um, trying to build up, you know, X, Y, and Z. Nothing was ever just thrown in there for the sake of it. And for me, it just kind of makes the film feel cheaper. Like, it feels like someone replicating Scream, like as if they give it to a different director and a different writer, and they're just trying to make a new installment. It just feels cheap, and it just shouldn't. Especially as when she leaves through the window and all the lights come on and instantly everyone just runs out and it's all perfectly timed. It's just you know where's the essence of realism gone? And if we're gonna go into the surreal, we should cement it harder. Anyway, I don't wanna like just repeat myself loads, but like this is just kind of what I feel looking back on this film now. So the new gang, uh Jennifer, uh Dewey and Gail go to question Milton about Marie Prescott. And things that had happened there, and he finds um, Rowan there as well. And Rowan kind of like, you know, leaves. We then get that confirmation that Maureen was sort of exploited by people, and she did work on several of these films, which means that Milton was probably one of those persecutors. Again, when you look back retrospectively now, you can see all these references to like Weinstein comes from, and I guess maybe West Craven was kind of highlighting that this type of thing happens in cinema and that it should stop exposing uh, the truth for everyone to see, but we were too naive to know about it then because nobody had come forward with any of that type of information anyway, so then uh, they get a call from the fake Sydney to say that they've gotten to Roman's birthday party. So they all head there to meet the rest of the cast. Find out Sydney was never invited to begin with. Basically, Kincaid heads her as well, tells Sydney not to go, but she goes anyway. She brings a gun. And they all kind of meet up together and have somewhat of a party, I guess. Fun fact as well, I'm pretty sure that um Roman's house in Scream 3 is the same house. That was in Halloween H2O, if I'm not mistaken. Although it wasn't a house in H2O, it was used as a school, I believe. So that's kind of cool. So the group splits up, proper Scooby-Doo style. And they go around the house. They sort of find um, collectibles from different movies, which is kind of cool. And they manage to find the ghost-faced hiding uh, place for like the costume and the voice modulating and stuff. I think Dewey and Gale found this. So that's kind of cool. They kind of confirm there that, yeah, he had a voice changer, obviously. And they run into Angelina, who they then tell her that the killer's in the house. And that kind of doesn't go well. She tries to escape. She gets killed. Obviously, um, this would have been a red herring if it was still the case that she was still the killer. Kind of like in the first film. But it's not the case. So she's actually just dead in this. Gale goes into the basement and finds Roman dead in, like, some coffin. Guess another kind of red herring this would have happened in the first one. So if you think about, like, how the original script went, like, those two would have been dead and not considered, like, suspects. So then, you know, who would it be? But obviously that's not the case now. While she's in the basement with him, Dewey comes to save the day and obviously doesn't. Ghostface throws a knife... Which hits him in the head, which I think is absolutely insanely ridiculous. And then, yeah. So to wrap this up, Sydney comes. They have like a one-on-one spat. They realize that it's actually Roman. Roman is in fact um, her brother, who Marine Prescott um, had an affair with some person, and basically she just never accepted him as a son, and therefore he was abandoned, and he feels jealous because Sydney had this perfect life, whereas he had nothing. But when you think about it now retrospectively, um, I think Roman had the better life than she did. I mean he was a director in Hollywood working on Stamp, which if it's anywhere near Scream, the actual film franchise, then in the world of Scream, Stamp would have been a massive film franchise. He's technically like a millionaire, is he not? Like at least. Like anyway. So they have it out. Have a good fight. See they get shot, that's a shocker. You realize she's winning a bullet through fast. Of course. She's been to the police station. You know, she's gonna have one of those. He got shot as well. Fanable in the head, dead. Um GG the ends, I guess. And then obviously at the end, they all sit down and watch a film together. It's kind of like a weird picturesque ending. And the door opens and Sydney leaves it because she's not scared anymore. I-, I like all these like little symbolisms that they give Sydney. It's just very, very bizarre that um There's these, like, random moments of just... Surrealism. So another part of this film is, like... Supposedly there's three endings, but they never told the cast which one they was going to have. And I'm kind of curious what those other two endings would have been. That would have been nice. So that's essentially Scream 3, in a nutshell. And my general feelings is that it's just kind of... A glued-together mess. Which has a lot of pieces of really good and interesting stuff. It's just they never commit to anything. So because of that, like it just feels a bit janky I would have loved for them to either play it on more with the kind of supernatural element and made it more of like a maybe like a PTSD thing for Sydney or like some kind of like a weird illusion and stuff or they kind of ran with um, the idea that everyone could be like a potential suspect you know just like the first film everybody's a suspect Um, and sort of did more to kind of cement that with the audience and give everybody a motive, because it's Hollywood, and in Hollywood I guess everyone's trying to gain something. You know. So yeah. That's my general thought process on Scream 3. We'll move into Scream 4, which um, I have much more fond opinions of. And then at the end, like I said, I will talk about my potential predictions for the next Scream film. Then it's time for your last chance question. The remake of the groundbreaking horror movie in which the villain... Halloween, uh, Texas Chainsaw, Dawn of the Dead, The Hills Have Eyes, Amityville Horror, uh, Last House on the Left, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, My Bloody Valentine, When A Stranger Calls, Palm Night, Black Christmas, House of Wax, The Fog, uh, Piranha... It's one of those right? Right? So, let's deep dive into Scream 4, which was released in 2011. Surprisingly, a massive 11-year jump between Scream 3 and Scream 4, which, when you consider like Scream 1, 2, and 3, were all relatively like within a few years of each other. This is quite a big, big jump. And it's kind of being replicated now from Scream 4 to Scream, which is going to be 2011 to 2022. It's so another 11 years. It's kind of interesting why things were done so late on and why this sort of stuff wasn't jumped on sooner. And my main kind of guess is because when you think about like sort of the satire nature and the commentary that Scream does about the slasher franchise and obviously about the the horror franchise in general within cinema, there has to be like a new growing trend for it to poke fun at. And generally speaking, through the 2000s, it was all about just remakes. And, you know, this is kind of where Scream 3 makes this commentary on, which is sort of towards the back end of when all that stuff happened. You know, the early 2000s was all about, like, remake after remake after remake. You know, Hills of Ayers, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, another Wes Craven film. And then you're looking at, like, uh, Black Christmas. I talked about this previous while. There was, there was a lot of remakes in the 2000s because of that there wasn't a lot of new and interesting things. You know, a lot of just continuations of the same franchises, like Saw, a replicating system every single film. Foundation replicating every single time. You know, and I guess it took a while for cinema to kind of create a new trend for the screen franchise to do the same. And this is a little hint of what I'm gonna get on the end, where it's just my predictions for the screen of film that's coming out. I think it's gonna replicate the same horror trends that's going on right now, which we'll talk about very, very shortly. So in screen four, we're introducing some new characters. Uh Emma Roberts is in this. I absolutely love Emma Roberts. She's so good. Like I did really enjoy um Seventh so American Horror Story, especially when she was in it, you know, she's just got this really good, like, you know, badass persona and presence. It's just good. It's kind of like, uh, this, like I don't give a shit about you feeling. It's just so good the way that she can do this, and it, it suits her character perfectly. So she plays uh Jill Roberts, and then you got um Hayden Panaretia probably butchered that uh, Kirby V, that's Jill's best friend Anthony Anderson, um, he plays the Anthony Perkins who's the deputy uh, Adam Brody plays Ross Hoss, who's the other deputy Rory Culkin Charlie Walker, uh, Robbie's best friend yes, this is Macaulay Culkin's brother Mary McDonald's Kate Roberts, Jill's mother uh, and Sydney's maternal aunt yeah Uh, She has a very, very, very small role to part in this. Uh, She is in some of the deleted scenes, though. Kind of interesting. Uh, Marlene Shenton as Judy Hicks, deputy again. Uh, Judy Hicks in this is probably the most creepiest character we've had in a single Scream franchise. Um, I think that's kind of the point, though. It's kind of something they wanted to give you that sort of doubt over. Alison Brie as Rebecca Walters, which is Sydney's publicist. She... Yeah, she's okay. She definitely sees the role quite well. And then there's some other, like, general random people who don't really matter too much because they just end up dying anyway. <laughs> so the intro for this film is kind of bizarre. It's basically a film within a film. Um, it got to the point, where I guess, now where even Stamp within Scream has become self referential of its own nature of being a horror franchise so we're getting into the inception level of like horror filmmaking right now and yeah this is kind of cool it definitely catches you off guard and then you know it brings you back to the original actual two main girls of this who end up getting killed it's kind of I think when I first saw this film I got kind of confused because it gave me a lot of like scary movie vibes where I kind of Didn't know if this was serious or just, like, a parody. But no, it's 100% serious. And uh, so two random girls on a campus get killed. The way the first scream sort of happened in a way. And this is just to kind of introduce sort of, like, Jill and her boyfriend and the fact that we've gone back to school in Woodsboro. And we're essentially starting from the beginning because that's kind of the theme of this film, right? It's all about the remakes. We're, We're talking about the remake trend of Hollywood when it came to horror throughout the 2000s. So Sydney comes back to Woodsboro. She um, releases a book about her life. So now she can't give uh, Gail any shit about writing a book ever again. <laughs> Speaking of Gail, she's uh, struggling to write a book and she's kind of jealous of Sydney's success. Feels bad, man. As we're introduced to um, Jill more properly and all of her friends, we get introduced to... Um, the two hosts of sort of like the horror club at the school, uh, which is um, Charlie and Robbie. I think the they have a thing called like Hall Pass, which is also like um, commentary on like how people just document the whole lives, like kind of like the whole vog- vlogging culture, sort of people who record their whole lives and upload it to the internet and that type of thing. So they kind of do that, but in school, which it's fair enough, pretty cool. I don't know if that's allowed <laughs> but like they do it anyway you realize that they're like the the film nerds so they're they combined are like the new day, essentially back in town at the bookstop we uh, get a little visit from dewey and deputy judy they've had a call that something weird is going on and the killer's here or at least they trace the phone call back to that location and for some somehow they managed to find the phone in the trunk of the car. I don't know how they heard that from the ringtone. But they did. We found pictures of Sydney covered in blood with a knife and the phone. And it all kicks off. So, do and uh, Sydney have a little chat in the police station. Gail tries to join in, but Deputy Judy's just like, No, no it's a police business. Go away. And Gail's just like, How dare you get another person stepping on my shoes? Doing then kind of reiterates this and doubles down on it. And we can see that this causes issues in the marriage where, you know, it kind of makes Gail want to go on her own and go rogue to figure things out. This is definitely not getting the gang back together. So generally, quite a bit of uninteresting stuff happens after this. But the most important thing sort of happens when we go out to Sydney's house, we're introduced to Maureen's sister... And essentially, Jill goes upstairs and her boyfriend uh, cross through the window and it's just like the first scream. Sydney walks in on this and it's just like, oh, well, I'll, uh, I'll leave you guys to it, I guess. And I see Judy just like stood creepily in the dark saying like, oh, we used to go to high school together. And Sydney's just like, right, okay, you're on the list. <laughs> Later in the night, uh, phone calls happen. Obviously... One of them is from Ghostface. And I like the whole bait and switch of, you know... Which, uh... Sort of, which... It's almost like in the first Scream where he's like, what door am I at? But in this one it's like, I'm in the closet. You know, that is pretty creepy actually. That was a really good line. And obviously, it's not their closet. It's their friend who lives opposite. And essentially... uh, She gets stabbed and brutalised and murdered. And it's actually really gory for Scream standards. Um definitely reminds you more of like the first one when uh sort of casey's boyfriend gets butchered in the backyard like that kind of like guts out blood everywhere kind of thing definitely toned that down in some of the other films some of the later films anyway the blood was definitely a lot more minuscule and not really a lot of gore to be honest but in this they're all out there going full Full uh golf fest in this. Which I like. And I hope the new one does it as well. So they go to the body. And Jill and Sydney's there. Jill gets like ambushed by the killer. Sydney like beats the shit out of the killer. But of course the killer gets away. Which you kind of expect at this point. I mean Sydney is like an adult. And more often than not. These killers tend to be teenagers. Like actual like really young teenagers. So I totally expect Sydney to just go in there and absolutely beat them up. (laughs) Uh, The police came. Uh, Obviously, it's too late. And one of the hilarious things is in a deleted scene. Where essentially, um... Maureen's sister sort of, like, apologizes to Sydney because she was having sleeping tablets and drinking alcohol and she passed out through the whole thing, which is just so weird. I mean, I can see why they deleted it, but it's just really funny when you watch that scene. It's just like, all right, okay, my like, God. Then Sydney's uh, publicist gets murdered in a car park. Nobody cares. I mean, the fact that it's in a car park is kind of creepy. Uh, car parks in general at night, usually pretty creepy. But who cares? Then it's the big thing where after conversations that Gail had um, in the school, she goes, like, this thing for the, the horror club, whatever it is sort of agrees to work with Gail in order for her to do, like, a cameo because Gail sees that, you know, they're recording everything and there's no cameraman these days. I mean, she could literally just buy a camera. Like, she is surely rich enough. But anyway, uh, they realise there's a thing called Stabathon where they they play, like, all, like, seven, eight stab films back to back and everyone's going to be dressed up in masks. Sounds safe. but It does kind of remind you of Scream 2, that introduction at the cinema when the first step came out. And of course, everyone's dressed in costumes and stuff like that. Pretty cool. I wonder if it's going to be like that when we watch Scream. I kind of hope it is, you know. Oh, I hope so. Anyway, it's getting excited for that for a second. <laughs> so at the start of the run, they realize that the killer's likely going to be there because it's a big party, just like in the first film. And that's kind of where you want to get the body count up. Get some kills, get some drama, get some blood and gore going. So, Gale heads there, and everybody else sort of heads there as well. Gale goes and she realises that this killer is recording the events, right? So, this is something that kind of they talked about in the, the horror club, which is that, you know, everything's kind of pushed online these days, like... If a killer is going to do anything in modern days, like, they'd want to film it and create a film and, and upload it so that it lives on forever. So even though if the killer themselves die, like, the legacy and, and stuff carries on forever. Will this get picked up into new Scream film? Probably not. Because I don't think they successfully uploaded anything, I don't think. At least they didn't clarify that in this film. But anyway. Gale goes gets ambushed by Ghostface. Ghostface stabs her in the shoulder, which is a non-lethal attack, which... He could have easily done a lethal attack. That's kind of weird. I can only imagine it's because maybe uh when you think about Charlie, maybe he thought he could get more out of Gail in the long run, so wanted to keep her alive. It's just that she was in an awkward place and she'd like discovered what was going on. Dewey comes, shoots, Ghostface escapes, and Gail lives to fight another day. So um Sydney and Marine's sister and Jill are all chilling in the house together, guided by two police officers. They end up getting killed, obviously. Pretty brutal. Nice little bit of dialogue between them it was kind of funny, you know, talking about like how you know you can't say be right back and you know or well, you you know might come back and find me dead instead. Like it's kind of fun little dialogue that you would expect from the scream films and was definitely lacking in Scream 3. And yeah, they both get killed pretty brutal. You know, I don't know if a stab through her head, like through the skull, like from the front is even possible, but it looked brutal. Obviously, then um, Judy arrives and things just aren't quite right because she finds the bodies. Sydney's like, now, nah, mate, don't trust you at all. Um, Ghostface comes, attacks. Marine sister gets killed. Uh, Jill is not here. She's escaped, she's uh, run out. And they all kind of end up at, I guess, like, another party. It's just the way things should end. And they're all there. Charlie tries it on with Kirby, uh, which is unsuccessful. Kind of bizarre when you think about, like, he's secretly dating Jill about why he did that. But I don't know. Anyway. And obviously, obviously, you have everyone in the house. They're all split up. Um, you know something bad is going to go down. Ghostface arrives who we know um, retrospectively that this is probably jill in costume um she does a, a lot of killing and obviously there's a really nice moment where we're trying to decide between is charlie like one of them or is he like innocent and the same thing with uh robbie in a way you know a nice sort of ramp up of like suspicion of people Again, I think it's always nice to drip-feed this a little bit heavier throughout the film. You know, I think when you look at Billy and Stu, like, they knew how to gut someone. That type of stuff, like, adds a bit of suspicion from the get-go. It's kind of nice to drip-feed drip stuff like that a little bit. Sydney arrives trying to get Jill. This doesn't really play out the way that she hopes. As they stumble into Robbie bleeding, and, yeah, Ghostface comes out and attacks. So then, like they have quite a bit of a run around the house. This all stuff is filmed very, very well. Um, every way from Sydney going on the roof and all the way back through the house. Um, it, it makes sense in terms of the layout that we know of the house. And yeah, it's filmed pretty well. And then also we get to a situation where we're confronted with Charlie outside. They don't really want to let him in. It's kind of suspicious, and basically. He gets knocked out and tied up by Ghostface, and he looks exactly like um, the boyfriend from Scream 1 of Casey. That's that's kind of a nice little throwback to the original. Kirby is answering the questions in the same way the first film happened, and she pretty much answers every single question right, um, even by proxy of naming every film that could possibly be existed on a remake. Which... I think, exactly what this film is poking fun at, like I said earlier. She goes out to save Charlie. Charlie responds by stabbing her. Uh, Shock. I think this kind of cements that he's obviously one of the killers. I I think he's probably, like, the one you suspect the least. He's so, like, um... You know, nerdy and dweebish. It's kind of like if Randy was the killer, he'd be a bit like, What? I mean, I guess you could say this about Stu, but, you know... Yeah, I thought it was quite a surprising act. And then the whole thing reveals itself, where essentially Jill and Charlie are working together in order to um, recreate the events of the first film, so then Jill can become famous in the same way that Sydney did. And obviously, the relationship she built with Charlie is just fake, and purely just used for the fact that she needed someone else to do some of the kills and someone to blame the whole thing on so that she can appear innocent towards the end. So, Charlie doesn't live... Most of them don't live. And then we get this amazing scene where Jill is sort of creating the crime scene. She's stabbing herself, pulling her out, throwing herself all over the place, covering like, throwing herself into glass, you know. And then lies there, mirrored to Sydney on the floor as this, like, perfect replica. And so here's kind of, like, a, a hard take about this film. I think this is the first time we've seen a killer that's actually, like really, truly calculated and planned and, and everything that was going to happen from start to finish. Like, even Billy and Stu didn't know how they were really going to end it. Like, they knew they wanted to blame, sort of, Sydney's dad, but how that sort of happened clearly wasn't well thought out because otherwise they wouldn't have revealed who they were in front of so many people, including a police officer. <laughs> um, But in this, like, no, it, it, I think Jill did a really good job of covering all of her tracks and making sure that no one could find out. And the only way to sort of finalise this is just to kill Sydney towards the end. And in many ways, this kind of makes me think that Scream 4 is the Scream 3 that we should have had. Um, Obviously, some of the commentary wouldn't have made sense because there wasn't really that much of a heavy remake culture at the beginning of the 2000s. It kind of came back after it. This is kind of a lot of the same... Motivations of Scream 3. So. If you think about Scream 1 as being like. Billy sort of. Getting Sydney for basically ruining his family. Scream 2 is essentially Billy's mother. Getting revenge. So that's like the main motivation. Scream 3 is like. You know. Sydney's brother. um, Being jealous. And wanting to have what Sydney had. That's kind of the same motivation. Except. In a way, Jill is way more believable and way more compelling and way more planned out, you know, and not as emotionally impulsive. Like, she's very calculated from start to the end. She approaches it like, well, now it's time to get to work and get it done. And it's really refreshing. And I think it's sort of the same motivating factor as Scream 3, but, like, without all the fluff and confusion. And instead we have, like, this really cold, calculated person. And I love that. You know, absolutely. So it kind of ramps up in hospital where Sydney, like, is going to make it. And, you know, Jill applies that, well, we've got to go to work kind of attitude and tries to go and, like, suffocate Sydney, which I don't know how that would have played out because, you know, they're in a hospital. Getting a postmortem is uh, pretty quick, I imagine. And they would have determined pretty quickly that she would have died of suffocation more than anything else so, who knows but it made a really good ending especially, um, you know sort of getting killed by like a a shock machine, whatever those things are, pretty cool all in all, like I really liked Scream 4 I think it was like very refreshing it's modern without being dated because, you know it didn't rely too heavily on a lot of like technology tropes and, and like whatever you know, like it, it stuck to the true Scream core principle of being satire about specific parts of the horror genre whilst having a story around it with good, compelling people. Good motivation, good plot and reasoning behind it. Pretty solid film all around. I really enjoyed it. So it's like a final rating for both films. Scream 3 probably gets like a 2.5 out of 5. 100%. And I would say Scream 4 guess like a 4 out of 5. Uh, I don't think it's perfect by any means and it's by no means uh, an all-time classic nor is it the best one in the franchise. But it's a solid it's a solid entry essentially. Well everyone, thank you for joining me going through the discussion, talking about these two films, sort of my thoughts and processes on it. I'm going to give you my sort of final thoughts now about like where I think we're going to go. Into screen 2022. And we'll see if any of these predictions come through uh for the next episode, which will be on the 18th, which will be after the film comes out. I plan to watch it at least once. Uh maybe twice. Maybe once just to enjoy, a second to kind of pay a bit more attention and maybe make notes. And we'll see like how much of this stuff comes true and how far off I am. <laughs> um I think it'll be pretty fun. So if you take like one of the core principles of Scream and what it tries to do with the franchise is the commentary on um, the common tropes and trends of cinema, especially in the horror uh, department, and how it can poke fun at that and sort of highlight this to the audience and maybe reasons why. Obviously, in with the Scream, we won't have Wes Craven, so a lot of those stylistic choices might not be there, but we still have Kevin Williams. So... I've kind of come to the conclusion that the story at least will still be solid, and the writing will still be solid. And all we'll get is probably a more modern, more, you know, polished scream film that maybe uh you know isn't as reliant on a lot of the more traditional filming that maybe Wes Craven would have done. You know, the guy's been doing it for he was doing it for a very, very long time and You know, people get habits and they like to film things in a very specific and certain way, gives them a flavour. And it does mean that, like, over decades, a lot of films can look very similar. And what you don't want is a film to look like the same that it was, like, 20, 30 years ago, just with, like, a modern filter. Like, you want a film to feel modern. And there's many ways that films can do that these days. Looking at a lot of, like... If you take things like uh, Conjuring and... um, you know, a lot of James Wan stuff, a lot of more like the paranormal films that have come out lately. You know, there's a lot of like long shots, a lot of, lot of wide shots. Um, same kind of thing with sort of like uh, hereditary and stuff like that. You know, I imagine we'll get um, a lot more things hiding behind people, a lot more of shadow sort of things you have to look out for um, a lot more. I think we'll see a lot more like stuff like that, which will make 100% interesting reviewing watching. I think that's what a lot of horror films try and do these days. They want to have these like little easter eggs so that when you re-watch it, you'll see a lot more content. So the main overarching plot and theme is going to be the common trend that I think happens a lot in remakes these days, which is it goes back to the first film and creates a new timeline. So if you look at like Halloween, if you look at the Child's Play film, uh, the Poltergeist film, Evil Dead, The Grudge film especially as well. Um, Even just taking two of those examples if we take like Halloween 2018 and The Grudge. So both these films keep the same title as the original film that came out except what it does is it tries to become like an authentic true sequel, right? So you rewrite the history you basically scrap off all the other franchises. So I imagine in this film, everything that happened in Scream 2 and Scream 3 and Scream 4 will just become irrelevant because the motives of the killer in this film, I imagine, will be to create a true, authentic, original sequel, which goes back to the original of Billy and Stew, And instead of um, referencing what came after it and taking inspiration of what came after it, will create its own new timeline to spin off. And we'll see what happens after that. Because in actual, like, horror outside of this sort of satire nature, a lot of that stuff hasn't really been very successful. Um, the Grudge definitely didn't um, do a lot of favours. The Poltergeist film, despite the original having many sequels, they never made another one. Didn't do very, very well. Halloween and Halloween uh, Kills, pretty divisive amongst a lot of people. I did quite like Halloween Kills. Um... But I know a lot of people didn't, you know, and we'll have to see what Halloween ends, turns out. But this is my sort of theory of what's going to happen. I think the motive of the killer is going to, to create a new authentic sequel from the Fast screen film, rewriting history, rewriting the past. And, you know, they'll probably poke fun at, like, probably how disrespectful that is as well, especially if, like, really talented directors and writers were involved in a lot of those films. That's my guess. And maybe this holds some credence to what people are saying where potentially we might get a return of Stu, which uh, Matthew Lillard has denied so far, as we know, any involvement in the film, uh, that he just is purely looking at this now as like a fan and and that's it, and that he's not involved, he's not been contacted, and he's not going to be a part of this. But as we know... Wes Craven has always said that he never wrote Stu to be a character that dies. And if we want to have a film that goes back to the original to create a new authentic sequel, I imagine it might be led by Stu and somebody else to sort of take revenge for Billy. So sort of like um the what happened after Scream ended. Do you know what I mean? Kind of like in Halloween Kills where like we see what happens at the end of Halloween... And we rewrite that history, right? So now it doesn't lead into Halloween 2. Instead, this is the new timeline, right? I hope this makes sense to people. This is what I think might happen with Scream. So now it will happen straight after the end of Scream 1. It will rewrite the timeline, potentially go ahead across. The only thing that is potentially against this theory is a line that Sydney says in the trailer, where she says, I've been through this a lot. This... Kind of hints at that everything that's happened post Scream One is canon. So maybe if my theory is true, it's only in name, not in practicality. So it's just a motive that the killer has, rather than the studio themselves wanting to create an authentic sequel. I thought I'm pretty sure that the Texas Chainsaw is meant to be doing something very similar. If I'm not mistaken, I can't remember. Anyway enough of a tangent. So it might only just be in name and and not like in practicality. Anyway, that's my theory. Uh, I hope it's good. I'm extremely excited. I can't wait to hear what other people think as well. Um, When I put the post onto Instagram and Twitter, um, feel free to let me know what you think on there about what you think is going to happen in the film. After I've watched it as well, I'll probably do a short video for YouTube. Uh, where I'll talk about the film and what happens, like a review uh, I might do like a, a spoiler and like a non-spoiler sort of version and yeah we can have a chat about either as well that would be pretty dope so next episode, 18th, that'll be the Scream review 25th will be my collaboration episode with Skirtalk um, we might be covering some Texas Chainsaw Massacre stuff there, that'd be pretty cool not sure which one yet but we'll soon find out. So um, please do check out the episode as well. Check them out as well. They're very nice people so far, um, and the podcast is really good fun. Okay. Well, thank you all very much for listening. Do check out the links below. You can be on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. You know, a little subscribe. That'll be nice. Check out the video I did on there as well, of Chucky, uh, the TV series, a little review. Uh, there's a Discord link as well if you want to talk in Discord. So far, it's only me in there, so it'll be a one-on-one conversation. And for everybody else, I will see you in the next one.